Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk slash donate. Having prayed for the gift of understanding, we should also pray for the gift of explanation as well, because it's, it's a um, two-way street, it's sharing what we know. And as I mentioned um, before, we, believe, we learn far more from the questions that we ask. So there were, I'm hoping to keep the talk to less than an hour, so that will give us more time for questions, answers, and discussion, if needs be. Well, always we will begin by invoking the Holy Spirit so that he himself might speak to us and that he bring to our minds the light of understanding. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant by the same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, Our Lady of Fatima, Saint Joseph. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Well, welcome to this second talk on Fatima and our times, in which I, first of all, intended to do, give a description and a meaning to many of the individual details that um, occurred when Our Lady came to Fatima. But they, one, there's so many, and then some of them are so interested, so interesting that they decided to focus on two or three aspects of this. As I mentioned last, the last time, Our Lady came to Fatima in 1917 on six successive months. There was a seventh month when she came, that was two months, twice in August, and the reason the children had been kidnapped. And then she promised she'd come a seventh time, which um, she did much later. But I will deal with those at a future talk. So, on the, in the apparitions, the children in May were looking after their sheep when Our Lady came. They had resolved to say nothing about it, but Jacinta couldn't keep quiet, and she told her parents, and the news began to spread. So that by June, there were 50 people at the Kova with the children. And then the following month, July, there were two to 3,000. In August, five, six, or even 7,000. In September, more than 9,000. And then on the 13th of October, the crowd was estimated more than 70,000 people. 
So we are talking about a public event, a public miracle. And because it is public, because there's so many witnesses, it's the main reason that we take it very seriously. It is not a case of some holy person or not so holy person having a, a vision and saying they had a vision, even though it's true, but rather a public miracle, a public event where thousands, there were thousands, tens of thousands of witnesses. So this gives Fatima a place, a credence of its own. There were many signs associated with the arrival and the departure of Our Lady. Among the signs, it, the first was a flash of light. The children initially thought it was lightning. And then when the crowds um, started to gather, there was a clap of thunder. Many people saw a globe of light descend from the east. And this, this is one of the details that I'd like to spend some time on later. But Our Lady always came from the east and returned to the east. This was seen by many people. Everybody agreed that just before the apparition, the atmosphere, the air cooled. Although this happened in summer, when it was exceedingly hot, just before noon, the air cooled and people thought it was spring. There was a fresh breeze, which is very unusual. When the children were speaking, or rather when Lucia was speaking to Our Lady, and Lucia was the only one who spoke, only um, Jacinta, Jacinta and Lucia could hear what Our Lady said, and Francesco only saw the vision, nothing more than that, he only saw. And so whatever Our Lady said, the two girls had to tell him. And this is very important when we come to the third secret. There was, uh, when Our Lady was speaking, the people close by could hear a buzzing, like bees or insects. And then there was a small white cloud which descended over the, the little tree. The tree is only about three feet high. A little cloud descended. And when the children were kidnapped, so only the crowd of two or three thousand were present, the children weren't there, but they saw the cloud descend, and they saw the branches of the tree bend as if someone was standing on it. And when the lady departed, the branches went up, leaning to the east. And then there was, in September, the fall of flowers. Again, the crowd saw these flowers fall into the ground, um, but uh, they, they dissolved before they reached the ground. And they also saw, saw rainbow colors as well, both in September and in October. So these were the, the some of the details external uh, to be observed by the crowds. But the children had uh, a different um, uh, vision of Our Lady when it came to these manifestations in, in particular. In May, in fact, every time except in the September apparition, Our Lady opened her hands and light would come out, streams of light. The first time it happened in May, it enveloped the children, and as Lucia would write later, we felt as if we were lost in God. 
so much so that we cried out, almost Holy Trinity, my God, I adore you, I love you in the most blessed sacrament. In June, when Our Lady had said that she would take the two younger children to, to heaven very soon, and that Lucia would remain for some time to make her known, when she, as she departed, she opened her hands again, light came out, and the light from her left hand swept the children, taking them up to heaven, and the one, the, the light that fell on Lucia covered the face of the earth. The children received also a vision of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, by which they understood that God wanted reparation to be made. In July, the light this time struck the earth and opened up and the children had the vision of hell, which I'll speak about in another talk. In August, there were the reflections of the rainbow and the leaves like flowers. The children were not present, they had been kidnapped, but the crowd saw that. In September, the atmosphere cooled again. The, the crowds um, testified to that. And in October, as Our Lady was departing, she threw her hands up, the light struck the sun, and it was followed by the great dance of the sun. So, these are some of the details surrounding the six apparitions. But before we can delve into the meaning of them, it's important that we know a little bit of scriptural theology. Just a little bit. In the scriptures, there's something called types and archetypes. A type is found in the Old Testament, the archetype is in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to give a definition because it's, it's, it's going to hopefully make it a little clearer. What do we mean by a figure type? In its application to the whole of scripture, an Old Testament figure type is a person, place, or thing, or event foreshadowing a New Testament archetype. That is the perfect model or type. The New Testament archetype is always greater than its Old Testament figure type. So, essentially, we have persons, places, things, or events in the Old Testament. They are the shadow. They are the type. They are a reflection. They are imperfect. In the New Testament, we have the reality. We have the truth. We have the perfection, which is called an archetype. There are many examples of it. For instance, in the letter to the Galatians, St. Paul speaks about there being two covenants. In fact, he says, Abraham had two wives, Sarah and Hagar. He says that he had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He says that this was a type of what was the reality between the, the, the kingdom of Israel and the church. That the church is essentially the archetype 
and is represented by Isaac, whereas the synagogue is represented by Ishmael. The church is the result of grace, the synagogue the result of nature. The children of the true children of Abraham are the children of promise. That's one example of it. But there are others. Our Lord himself spoke of the type and archetype. For instance, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he said, as Moses raised the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised up. So Moses, because of the people's lack of faith, they were bitten by serpents. God commanded Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put it on standard. And whoever looked at it would be saved. But Christ came seeming to be a sinner and was raised up on the standard, on the cross, and all those who looked at him with faith were saved. So our Lord himself speaks of the type, he himself being the archetype. But that's not the only place he did it. He also spoke of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so the, man of, so the son of man will be in the earth three days and three nights. So Jonah and his story is the type, but the reality is Christ. Our Lord also spoke of um, Melchizedek, or at least um, the prophet uh, David spoke of Melchizedek, and St. Paul in the letter to the Hebrews, or whoever wrote the letter to the Hebrews, um, speaks about Melchizedek being a type of Christ. So Christ is the perfection, the model, the ideal, perfect high priest, Melchizedek being a reflection, a type. We have the tent which Moses saw and was commanded to build a model of on earth. See that you make it as you saw it in heaven, said God. And then we have the, 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 the um, tent of meeting on earth, but the reality is in heaven. And we go further. The temple becomes the perfect tent on earth. But what does our Lord say? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. So the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem was the type. The reality is Christ, his body, of which we are members. St. Peter tells us we are living stones. So we are the reality. There are others. The sacrifice of Isaac, for instance. Abraham offered Isaac, but the Father, God the Father, offered Christ his son. That's the reality. We can also speak of the manna, as the, uh, it was not Moses who gave you the manna, the bread from heaven. It's my Father that gives you the living bread from heaven. So the manna is the type, but Christ is the reality. He is the true bread. Um, the people leave in Egypt. That's the type. We leave not Egypt, but we leave the captivity, slavery to the devil through baptism. Solomon riding the donkey. Remember when um, David was dying and he said to Bathsheba, let Solomon ride my donkey into, into, or mule into the city as a sign of his kingship. What did our Lord do on Palm Sunday? He rode on the donkey into, into Jerusalem and they claimed him king, didn't they? The people claimed him king. 
So here we see types in the Old Testament and archetypes in the New. So we're going to apply this. Those I've mentioned relate directly to Christ, but they also relate directly to Our Lady, such as Gideon's fleece, which was put out and, and he prayed that the, the rain, would, the dew would fall on the fleece and not on the ground, which it did, and that it would fall on the ground and not on the fleece, which it did. That is always regarded as a type of Our Lady. The gate, the, the east gate of the temple is another type of Our Lady, the garden, and so on. There are many types right through the scriptures. The column of incense that goes through the wilderness is a type of Our Lady in the Song of Songs. But what did Our Lady want at Fatima? Six times she came. What did she ask for? Basically, two things. There are many other things, but basically, there were two things she asked every time. The daily rosary. And I'm going to give a talk on the rosary itself, separately. The daily rosary. And the second thing she asked was, return on the 13th of next month. Always the 13th. She promised to work a miracle on the 13th of October. She made that promise in July. She repeated it in August. She repeated it in September. And she fulfilled the promise in October. So there were three months announcement of a public miracle. So we're going to focus on these two, well, the daily rosary we'll do next time, but today I want to focus on the 13th day of the month. Talking of types and archetypes, Fatima focuses or points to one book in the Bible in particular. Actually, there are three books to which it looks, but I'm going to focus on one of them. And that is the book of Esther. And it does so in many subtle ways. Our Lady makes or presents the, the connection very, very subtly. That's why I ask, pray for understanding. You should also pray for observation. The, she is dressed in a white dress with gold trim, as, as you know, as you're familiar with the statue. But at the hem of her gown, just above the ankles, is a little star. A little five-pointed yellow star. Why do you think it's there? God doesn't do anything without a reason. And all of his works are full of mystery, to be pondered by those who love him. That little star takes us back to the book of Esther, because Esther means star. The other thing that points to the book of Esther is the fact that Sister Lucia died on Sunday, the 13th of February, 2005, which in the Hebrew calendar is the fourth day of Adar, that is the twelfth month, 
of the Hebrew calendar. And Ada, the month of Ada, February, it's, it, it's because the, we follow a solar calendar, it doesn't match up with the Hebrew calendar, which is lunar. And so the, the, the months overlap. So when we talk about something happening in February, or in Ada, it could be February, March. But Ada is a very important month for the, for the um, Hebrews. Because on 13th of Ada, the 13th day of Ada, the Maccabean liberation occurred. And the Maccabees had been fighting the pagans, the Greeks, for some four years. And they were, we finally had the victory on the 13th of Ada. It was also the day on when warriors fasted before going to war. And most important for us, it was the day a great battle was fought throughout the Persian Empire. And that battle occurred because of Esther. So who is this Esther that we're speaking about in the in the um, in relation to Fatima? Well, the Jews, the Israelites, regarded her as their greatest heroine because she saved the nation from annihilation. And her symbol is this little five-pointed star. The reason for her name well, it comes from the fact that her Hebrew name is Hadasha, which means myrtle. And the myrtle is a white flower with five points in the, in the shape of a five-pointed star. In the book of Esther, one day runs right through the book as a perpetual theme. And that is the 13th day. Esther intercedes for her people, just as our Blessed Lady intercedes for us. That's why we constantly pray for us, O Holy Mother of God. And then strikingly, Esther was, an, was orphaned. And she was raised by her uncle, Mordecai, who was the vizier of the king, that is, the vicar of the king. Now, I know most of you are probably not familiar with the book of Esther, but I hope that tonight you will read it. It's not very long, uh, eight, ten, no, uh, twelve chapters. So what's the story of Esther? Briefly, the Jews had been taken into exile by the Babylonians. The Babylonians had been defeated, the Persians are now in charge. There's a Persian Empire, and the Jews are scattered throughout the Persian Empire. In the capital, Susa, the king is um, Xerxes. That's how we, we know him in secular history. He's a very easygoing sort of person compared with ancient kings. And he has a queen, Vashti, 
who was very beautiful. And he said to, he is having this banquet and he wanted to show all his army officers and the, the diplomats and all those people how beautiful his queen was. So he said to her, come to the banquet. And she said, no, I won't. She refused to come. And the king was angry. And he consulted, because he never did anything without consultation, he consulted the wise men, the lawyers and so on, about what to do. And they said, the queen has insulted not just the king, but the whole nation. She has shown disobedience to the king. And this must stop. Therefore, she should no longer be queen and somebody else be put in her in um, someone else replace her. To which the king wrote an edict that Vashti is no longer queen and that she should never appear in his presence again. Now, when the king writes an edict in the Persian Empire, it is irreversible. It cannot be changed. So, four years pass, and the king decides that it's time for him to have another queen. So what does he do? He orders all the beautiful virgins to be brought to his palace and to be prepared so that he could choose a queen from among them. And so the, the girls are brought to the royal harem and there for one year they are prepared. Something similar to what happened to Daniel and his companions. Before they could be presented to the king, they had to undergo a purification. Now the purification that the, these girls went through consisted in six months in which they were anointed with myrrh, followed by another six months where they were anointed with perfumes and sweet-smelling spices. And they were also instructed. And among them was Esther, who went under her, father, her uncle's command, and her uncle told her not to reveal her name, nor her nationality, nor her relationship with him. And so she is in the palace, in the royal palace, and um, her uncle, Mordecai, visits the the palace just to visits the uh, the palace just to find out how things are going but never ever communicates directly with her and so the, when the, the there's time to be for the girls to be chosen the king finds esther to be the most suitable she's the most beautiful etc and so she becomes queen Mordecai didn't go to the wedding banquet. He stayed by the king's gate. And whilst there, he overheard um, two of the eunuchs discussing, plotting to overthrow the king. So he reports this, and the king um, um, arrests, has the, the um, eunuchs arrested, and finds them guilty, and so they execute it. And the king has this written down as a memorial. 
he thinks one day I have to reward Mordecai for what he has done. But in the meantime, there's another man who is rather ambitious. His name is Aman. And he manages to weasel himself into the king's confidence and so eventually reaches second after the king. And he thinks he is the big cheese around the place. And wants everybody to bow down when he passes. And of course, everybody does it except Mordecai, who will only bow to the Lord his God. And Mordecai is noticed, and Aman is angry and decides to destroy him and his people. Aman decides the whole Jewish race has to perish. And so he does it by lot. He casts lots, just as the soldiers were doing on Calvary for the garments of our Lord. He casts lots to find out on what day, which month, the Jews were to be slaughtered. Man, woman, and child. And the lot fell on the 13th Adar. And so the um, Ammon goes to the king and says, there's this people plotting against you and I'm willing to, to wipe them out. The king says, well, do it, and gives him the ring. So he writes a decree that all the Jews, wherever they are found throughout the empire, are to be killed on the 13th Adar. And so Mordecai, of course, gets to know this, and he goes to, the, to Esther, the queen, and begs her to intercede. She says, I cannot, because it's absolutely forbidden for anyone to approach the king without his approval, without him, in fact, him sending for you. So Mordecai says, will you let the whole people perish? If you don't do it, God will find us a liberator, but you yourself will perish. And so she asks Mordecai to fast, to pray and fast, and she herself would do so. And on the, that's having been done for three days, she then approaches the king, and the story, I'll let you read for yourself the details. The king sees her, extends his golden scepter to her, and says to her, whatever you wish, I'll give you. She says, I'm asking that you and Aman come to a banquet I'm preparing tomorrow. So the king says, okay. Aman thinks, oh, the queen, because he doesn't know her nationality, he doesn't know anything about her, he thinks, ah, the queen, I have the favor of the queen. And so he goes to the banquet. And the queen says, I'd like you to come to a banquet tomorrow night. So Aman um, goes home, and he, in the meantime, he's preparing the gallows for Mordecai. So the next day, he, he goes to the banquet again, and there the queen says, if it were only me, I would not say anything. But you have an enemy who wishes to destroy the people who are most faithful to you, the Jews. And the king is, says, who is this man? She says, Aman. And the king is enraged, 
as you can imagine, and leaves the palace. And Aman throws himself onto the, on, on, the, on the bed on which, on the couch on which the queen is lying, just as the king was coming back. And then the king thinks he's going to rape the queen. And so you can know what happened to him. That was it, on the giblet, off he goes. And so the, the, the king then learns the three secrets of Esther. How many secrets does that lady have at Fatima? He learns the three secrets. Her name, her nationality, and her relationship to Mordecai. And so the, the, um, the, the question now is that the, the Jews are going to be slaughtered. It's not possible to change the decree. What, as Pilate said, what stripsy, stripty. What I've written, I've written. Type, anti-type. So what, does, what can be done? The king issues a new decree in which he says, the Jews can defend themselves. And so all the Jews are armed, and there's this great battle on the 13th, and the Jews are saved, and Mordecai, um, ten, the, the queen then asks for the, the, for the execution of, of um, Ammon's 10 sons. And when you had ten sons, you know exactly who to think of. The great dragon, seven heads, ten horns. And that is the, basically the end of the story. So we're going to see how the story of Esther ties in with Our Lady of Fatima. As I said, though, before going to the king, and this is in Esther 2, um, verses 15 to 17. Before going into the king, the virgins were anointed for six months with the oil of myrrh, and for another six months with certain perfumes and sweet spices. This is a figure type, because in the Old Testament, God commanded the use of the oil of myrrh to be used before the building of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is also a type of Our Lady, because the Ark contained three things, namely the stone tablets, the manna, there was a golden urn with a manna that fell from heaven, and Aaron's rod. Our Lady conceived the word of God, not written on stone, but enfleshed in her womb. The manna that fell from heaven, our Lord is the living bread whom Our Lady conceived. And then the staff of Aaron that budded is, represents the priesthood. But Our Lord is the true priest, the great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the myrrh was used to anoint the ark um, whilst, before it was constructed and afterwards. And then there were the healing, it was also used for the healing of wounds and for bruises. But above all, as you will recall, it was brought by the wise men when our Lord was born. And so it's a symbol of self-sacrifice. 
So Esther, she came to the king in which month? When the king chose the, um, her as his queen, she came to him in the 10th month, during his seventh year. So it's the, the sign of perfect, of completion. And ta- the 10th month is a month of Tabeth in Hebrew, which falls in December. December is 10 in Latin. It's the 10th month. And of course, the 10th month is the great month where we celebrate the Immaculate Conception. Esther, as I mentioned, had three secrets. Namely, she does not reveal her name, nor her ancestry, nor her relationship to Mordecai. And this is explicitly stated in the second chapter of Esther, twice in verses 10 and then in verse 20. And Our Lady also had three secrets. The first secret was the vision of hell. The second was the war, the Second World War, the prediction of the Second World War during the pontificate of Pius XI, which was stated by name. And the last secret, the third secret, the hidden secret, which was partially, I believe it is partially, revealed in the year 2000. And stand for the Angelus. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord to thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord to thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And the word was made flesh. Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord to thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God. Let us pray. For forth we beseech you, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ, thy Son, was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. May the divine assistance remain always with us. through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. So, so then the, the, we're coming back to the, some of the details in the story of Esther. So Mordecai, Esther's uncle, does not attend the marriage banquet, but he stayed in the king's, at the king's gate. And this is Esther, second chapter, verse 19. What was he doing there? Well, the gate is the place that has to be protected against enemies. So, in a sense, he is guarding the kingdom of God. 
because the king, Xerxes, of course, is a type of God. He's God in the kingdom of God on earth. That is the twofold gate, the gate of heaven and the narrow gate. And it is there that he has the plot to overthrow the king. Now, the gate of heaven, we all know, is the title of Our Lady. And the narrow gate is, in fact, the church. <coughs> because, <coughs> because Mordecai is the vicar of the king. His position is going to be usurped by Aman. As a vicar, of course, we know, if we follow the type through, that we're speaking of the Pope. And he has this plot to overthrow the king. The Pope is also the keeper of the gate. He's the one who is to defend the truth. Our Lord himself intimated this when he says, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, we can think of it as the Pope, uh, Mordecai, hearing of a plot. And what do you think that could be? There was a Pope who overheard a plot. Leo XIII, on the 13th of October, 1884, had just said Mass, and as he came down the altar steps, he collapsed, and the, they thought he had died. When he revived, he was deadly pale, and he called for a pen, and he immediately wrote the prayer to St. Michael. St. Michael, the Archangel Defenders, with the other Leonine prayers, as they were called. And he explained to the cardinals what happened. He says, as I was coming down, I heard two voices. One said, give me power over your priest, and in 100 years, I will destroy your church. And the other voice said, you have it. When Pope Leo heard this, you can imagine, he, he immediately appealed to the, the one who has proved victorious over Satan, St. Michael. And that's why he wrote the Leonine prayers and commanded it be said after every Mass for the defense of the priests. And it was said until 1965-66. It was the first prayer to be removed from the Mass after the Council. Say no more. A nod is as good as a wink to a blind man. So Mordecai informs the king, Esther 2.22, and the Pope informs the church of the danger 
that is at hand. In the meantime, Amman, the Agagite, is promoted and he demands that all should bow before him. Mordecai refuses. Amman is enraged and determines to exterminate Mordecai and every Jew. We read this in Esther 3 verses 1 to 7. The day is chosen by Lot, cast in dice, and it is 13th Adar. Mordecai begs Esther to intercede with the king. This is Esther 4 verse 12. And she says, I cannot go into the king. Anyone who approaches the king without being summoned is executed. And Mordecai says, you have to go. We have no choice. And so, for the first time, Esther gives a command. And the command is this. She said, go, gather together all the Jews and pray ye for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days and three nights, and I with my handmaids will fast in like manner, and then I will go in to the king, against the law, not being called, and expose myself to death and danger. Esther 4, 15, 17. And then she goes into her chamber and she begins this prayer. We have sinned in thy sight, O Lord, and therefore thou hast delivered us into the hands of our enemies, for we have worshipped their gods. Thou art just, O Lord, and now they are not content to oppress us with most hard bondage, but attributing the strength of their hands to the power of their idols, they design to change thy promises and destroy thy inheritance, and shut the mouths of them that praise thee, and extinguish the glory of thy temple and altar. Notice what she has said. They want to shut the mouths of those that praise thee, and extinguish the glory of thy temple and altar. In other words, what is at stake is worship. Worship is at stake. And we go even further because what Ammon planned to do was to take over the kingdom. It would seem that he was in the plot of the two eunuchs or he was familiar with the plot of the two eunuchs that Mordecai overheard. And so his intention is to usurp the kingdom. Now, if we think of the church, because when Our Lady came, she asked the children to pray for the Pope, pray for the Holy Father. Again and again, and if you think of the message of Fatima, notice how we could say almost central is the Pope and the bishops. And if we're talking about popes and bishops, we're talking about worship, because they are to be the guardians of divine worship. And Leo XIII's vision was that, this, that Satan wanted to, to have power over the priests, 
so that he might change the worship and so destroy the church. So Esther then prepares the banquet for the king, as I mentioned, and Amen, and, and there she reveals her secrets. And this is in Esther 7, which is quite short, so I'll read it. So the king, of, um, the king of Haman went to the banquet with Queen Esther. Again, on this second day, during the drinking of the wine, the king said to Esther, Whatever you ask, Queen Esther, shall be granted you. Whatever request you make shall be honored, even the half of my kingdom. Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, I ask that my life be spared, and I beg you spare the lives of my people. For my people and I have been delivered to destruction, slaughter, and extinction. If we were to be sold into slavery, I would remain silent. But as it is, the enemy is unable to compensate for the harm done to the king. Who and where, said King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, to Queen Esther. Who and where is the man who has dared to do this? Esther replied, the enemy oppressing us is this wicked Haman. At this, Haman was seized with dread of the king and queen. And the king left the banquet in anger and went into the garden of the palace. But Haman stayed to beg the queen for his life, since he saw that the king had decided on his doom. And when the king returned from the garden of the palace to the banquet hall, Haman was thrown himself on the couch on which Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, Will he also violate the queen while she is in my own house? So here we have a man who is attacking the queen. When our lady came to Fatima, she asked for the five first Saturdays of reparation, for the five ways in which she is attacked. Those who insult her in five distinct ways. Those who deny her immaculate conception, blasphemy those who deny her perpetual virginity, those who deny her divine maternity, those who insult her in her sacred images, and those who alienate children from her. That is the purpose, to make reparation for those sins, just as Haman dared to throw himself on the queen. And the king was enraged and dealt with him accordingly. So those who insult the mother of God can hardly expect the Lord to take it quietly. So Haman is overthrown. Haman, as I said, is a figure type. He suggests, and his person suggests, there's a high-level infiltration within the kingdom, that is within the church, which plots to overthrow the monarch, Christ the king. To accomplish this, he and others lay plans to first destroy the king's allies. Haman's act of throwing himself upon Esther implies a great offense against the virgin, resulting in the wrath of God. So then the plot is to undermine the church. Where is the strength of the church? It is in the sacrifice of the mass. And this, in fact, is what we have been fighting over for the last 50 years. Before the council, we must come back to that. Before the council, 
Catholics throughout the world were united in one worship, with one language. And then the changes came. And now we can't even worship in our neighboring parish without there being some aggravation, some angst, some disturbance. Before the Mass was uniform, and it didn't matter which priest said the Mass, it was exactly the same. Now we find ourselves hunting for a priest suitable to our tastes. Before the Mass faced east, we all, priests and laity, faced east, as it says, facing the Lord. And therefore it was a sacrifice. And yet now, when the priest faces the people, it's a dialogue, a communion, a banquet. And we wonder why we are dissatisfied. Because we are, as Pope Benedict XVI said, worshipping ourselves. This is what he said. And so when he freed up the traditional Mass, the ancient Mass, the Mass of the Ages, there was a great outcry. Remember? Summum Pontificum, when he released that document, all he said was, what the Church had done in the past cannot now be wrong in the future, in the present or in the future. It must be the same. And so let those who wish to worship in the traditional way allow them. That's all he said. He didn't impose it on everybody. And yet there was this backlash, which I believe, I may be wrong, but I believe contributed to his resignation. I might be wrong on that, but this is my personal belief. It's one of the factors. Facing East, our lady made it a point, even when the children weren't there, of going, of coming from the East, returning to the East, to remind us that we should be looking to the East, from which Christ came. When at the Ascension, he went up, the apostles were looking, and the two angels appeared. Men of Galilee, why are you looking towards the East? Jesus, who you've seen gone there, will return. And that's why we've always celebrated Mass towards these. Every church that offers the sacrifice faces east. So, the Catholic Church, yes. The ancient churches of the east, such as the Nestorians, that is the Abyssinians, the Copts, and so on, who've been separated from us, for more than a thousand years, 1,500 years, they've been separated from us. They face east. The churches in India, which were founded by St. Thomas, and which were not rediscovered or discovered or, or, or met with until um, the, 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 the Portuguese went there in the 15th century, they face east. The first person to turn the altar, or rather remove the altar and put the table, was Martin Luther 500 years ago. Because he said the Mass is not a sacrifice, it's a banquet, it's a table we need. We eat at a table. We don't offer sacrifice. 
no Protestant church, ecclesial community, has a sacrifice or offers a sacrifice or has a priesthood, not even the Anglicans. In their 39 articles, which are the document for their foundation, they explicitly say there is no sacrifice. So, we have Pope Leo hearing those two voices, give me power over your priests, and I will destroy the sacrifice and with it your church, and the Lord said, you have it, did what he could. So then we have, going back to Esther, her triumph over Amman. The danger still remains because the Jews are going to be slaughtered on the 13th. What can be done? Well, very easy. A new edict is written in which the Jews are commanded, Esther chapter 11, to gather themselves together and to stand and fight for their lives. And so the Jews defended themselves on two days, on the 13th and the 14th of Adar, and the ten sons of Haman were killed. So then Sister Lucy passed into eternity on the 13th of February 2005, just before sunset on the first Sunday of Lent. Reminding us of Esther's call for prayer and self-sacrifice. It also needs to remember that there was a call for the consecration of Russia. And Our Lady had said, Jesus wishes you, Lucia, to make me known and loved. He wants to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. To whoever embraces this devotion, I promise salvation. These souls will be dear to God as flowers placed by me to adorn his throne. The one thing we know is there is no global devotion to our Blessed Lady or to her Immaculate Heart. And the reason is because the solemn collegial consecration asked for has not been done. Because Our Lady said, and Our Lord reinforced it, when Russia is consecrated by the Pope with the bishops, she will be converted. And the Church will recognize that conversion came about because of the intercession of the Immaculate Heart. Now we hear the consecration has been done, it's the end of it, we don't have to do anything more. No, because the conversion would be so dramatic that the church cannot do anything but admit, affirm, declare that this conversion is the result of the intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It brings us to the present time in which we live, this very year. When the, the, um, the Lord asked for the consecration of Russia, nothing was done. 
and two years later, he came back and said, they will follow the king of France. Since my ministers delay in carrying out my wishes, they will follow the king of France into misfortune. And so we ask ourselves, well, who is this king of France? Which one? And the answer is, is the story, the answer is given in the story of St. Margaret Mary Alacock. Now, if you remember last week, I said that the war, the First World War was going on. Pope Benedict XV had attempted to, to reconcile the warring parties and failed. And so he appealed to heaven. He wrote an encyclical. He brought the children to Rome and asked them to pray to the Queen of Peace. He gave Our Lady the title Queen of Peace. Pray to her to, to, to restore peace. The date on which he did that was the 4th of May, 1917. Nine days later, Our Lady appears in Fatima. But the 4th of May was the first Friday of May. The first Friday of May. And it was just before, I think, the, the 13th was a Sunday, and that week, the, the 13th was a Sunday, and that week would lead to Ascension. The Thursday would be Ascension, Ascension Day. So, the Sacred Heart, with, well, where did that devotion come from? It's ancient, there's reference to it in, in the scriptures, in St. John's Gospel, and the saints, especially the mystics um, of the 13th, 14th, 15th century, um, make reference to it. But the devotion really um, came into its own with the visions of St. Margaret Mary. In it, our Lord appeared to her, and said, inform the king of France, eldest son of my sacred heart, that the sacred heart wished to reign in his palace, to be painted on his standard, to be engraved on his arms, and that the sacred heart will make him triumphant over all the enemies of Holy Church, if the king obeyed Christ's commands in these matters. However, the king, Louis XIV did not. Although he is called the Sun King because of the splendor of his court, by the time he died, France was bankrupt and the condition of the country was morally depraved. Here was an opportunity given. Consecrate yourself. Consecrate your family, and I will make you the greatest of the kings. This, and then on June the 17th, 1689, so we're talking the period just after the, the um, wars of religion, our Lord said to St. Margaret Mary, to tell the king that France must be solemnly consecrated to my sacred heart. And the command, that was ignored by the king, and by his heirs. As a result, France, the first daughter of the church, succumbed to the enemies of the church. Exactly, exactly 
100 years later, to the day, on June the 17th, 1789, the godless Third Estate declared itself a national assembly. That's effectively the parliament, the, the, what would be the House of Commons. They declared themselves a national assembly, lawlessly stripping the reigning Catholic monarch, Louis XVI, of his authority. And the reign of terror began and went into full motion. The king, his queen, and many others were martyred. The French Revolution had begun. And the kings of France disappeared. On July the 13th, 1917, Our Lady said to Lucia, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred the Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and she will be converted, and a peace, an era of peace will be granted to the world. That was in July the 13th, 1917, the same time that the, the children had the vision of hell. Eleven years later, eleven years and eleven months exactly, on the 13th of June, 1929, Our Lady appeared to Sister Lucy, as she was now saying, the moment has come when God asks the Holy Father to make, in union with all the bishops of the world, the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart, promising to save it by this means. Promising to save it by the Spirit. Nothing happened. In August, our Lord himself came and spoke to Sister Lucia, referring to his command for the collegial consecration of Russia. By the choice of God's own words, he left no doubt that the request of his mother was also his own command and his will. He said, Make it known to my ministers that, given they followed the example of the King of France in delaying the execution of my requests, they will follow him into misfortune. However, it is never too late to have recourse to Jesus and Mary. And so, this is where we are. The consecration has not been done. And we see greater and greater turmoil. And there has not been any period of peace. Since the Second World War ended, there has never been peace in our world. Somewhere or other, battle war is being carried out. And then you ask the question, well, why is the consecration of Russia so important? Is Russia that bad? And the answer is no, that is not the point. Wouldn't, if God asks you to consecrate yourself, wouldn't you regard it as an honor? 
It is. God wants to honor this country as he wanted to honor France and the kings, as he honored Israel. He consecrated it in, in Deuteronomy. Moses consecrated the people of Israel so that they would be God's people. It's a good thing to be consecrated. When Jonah um, didn't want to go to Nineveh, because he knew that if, if Nineveh converted, they would become gods, they, they'd become favored of God. And he didn't want that. So we reach a stage now where um, the message, the 100 years is this year. We know from the vision that was released in the year 2000 that a a bishop dressed in white, it seemed to be the Holy Father, would pass through a half-ruined city over the corpses of his priests and that he would be praying for the souls and he would climb a hill where he would be shot. It's the vision that the Vatican released in the year 2000. You can Google it. It's, it's on there, the, the whole message. So, this is, this is only some of, the, of, of all that is contained in, in the, just the details of the um, apparitions of Our Lady at Fatima. Next week, I'll go on to something that Paul VI, next time, I'll go on to something Paul VI talked about, that Fatima is a compendium, a summary of the gospel to show that it is not, we can't separate it from what we believe. We can't separate it from the gospel. And we certainly can't separate it from the church. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord to thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Okay, her nationality, her name, and her relationship to Mordecai. And it's interesting that the relationship between Our Lady and the Holy Father um, is, is very close. The, the popes have been consistently defenders of Our Blessed Lady. We, when, we, when we talk about the conversion of Russia, we, we are, we're talking about a, a spiritual um, renewal of the country. It, it has, it, it has I, I think it has begun, or, but only as a sign. John Paul, in eighty-nine, uh, sorry, in sorry, in eighty-two, eighty-two, he consecrated um, the world to the Immaculate Heart. He went to, after he was shot. He went to Fatima the following year, and he did the consecration. And then we saw some seven years, um, eighty-two, eighty-nine, the, the, the collapse of the wall. But what collapse was? the communist um, uh, 
presence. And they didn't just collapse, they went on the ground. Because the, the very people who communists before suddenly turned up to be um, in, in the government. Huh? We didn't see a conversion. And when Our Lady asked for the conversion of Russia, Russia was a was an empire. It wasn't the, the Soviet republics, the, uh, you know, all joined together. But it was a distinct country. It had a, a, a monarch, a king, who was a, who was a Christian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. And the, the intention was that they should become Catholic. That just didn't happen. What's, what's happening now, I, th I, I, be, I believe, is a, a, a shifting of the, of the, um, what do you think on stages, what do you call it? The, the props on the stage. That's what's happening. And there is a move to have one world government and a one world church. And I think Donald Trump has, has, um, uh, is a cog in, is a, is a stone in the machinery of this one world government. That's why there's so much angst against it, so much criticism of him. Because he has upset the plans. Just as Benedict upset the plans. Interestingly, the present Holy Father is is making some very strange statements in where he's suggesting there should be one religion. You know, which you know is it's it's for for Catholics is very unnerving. There should be one religion, yes, but it should be the religion that Christ himself founded. When we as Catholics have to give up what we believe, and that was what was being asked of of, of um, Mordecai, you know, um, for the sake of unity, you know, we should have this um, one world government, one world church. It's not going to work. In fact, to give you an example, um, two Christmases ago, there was a horrible, there's no word for it, um, message that came from the Vatican, in which the Pope was seated at his desk, and there was a, a Buddhist, a Muslim, uh, a woman of some church or other Protestant church, and a priest. And they, they said, I believe in Allah, I believe in Buddha, I believe in Jesus. And a Jew, there was a Jew as well, um, not a priest. I, I believe in, in God. And then the they all ended up by saying, I believe in love. And then the, the Buddha, the Buddhists would hold a, a statue of the Buddha. The, the Muslim had um, the prayer breeds and the rosary. And what was the Jew carrying? I can't remember. And they all ended up, I believe in love. And that was the Pope. It's the same thing with the CC um, meetings. You know, we have all the religions there, all praying as equals. And in the CC meetings, under John Paul, St. John Paul, the, they had an idol of Buddha on top of the tabernacle. And then they had voodoo priests offering sacrifices, 
in the church of St. Of Francis. The following year, there was the earthquake which destroyed the, the basilica. Coincidence? I'm sorry, I hope I am shocking you. I'm sure many of you have not heard this. But the, these are the things that are happening, and we, we have to open our minds to see what is at stake. And what is at stake is nothing other than our immortal souls. That is what is being fought over. The souls of every, each and every human being on earth. That's what the battle is about. And that's why Our Lady came. And that's why she said, we have to make prayer and offer sacrifices because many people are falling to hell because there's no one to pray for them. Um, I, I would say that the, the fault is frequently with the leaders. And we have, we can start at the very beginning. The leader of all the angels could not accept God's plan. Namely, that he, Lucifer, would have to adore God under the appearance of man. The, the incarnation, according to Franciscan theology, that was what led to, the, to Luther, Lucifer's rebellion. And so he decided it is better to reign in heaven as king than to be a slave in heaven, to, be, to reign in hell as king rather than be a slave in heaven. So um, Lucifer. Then we have Adam, a simple commandment. What did he do? The woman you gave me gave me to eat. We go through scripture and we find it often that the leaders are influenced um, and, refuse, and there's a refusal to do what God requires. Abraham, for instance, he listened to his wife and he took Hagar as a wife and Ishmael is born, leading to all the other problems that emerge from that. David, in fact, Moses, why didn't Moses go into the promised land? Okay, again, a, a lack of fidelity. So the, the problem is with, with us, you know, as leaders. David, the same problem. You know, Peter, you know, even if all of these deny you, I will not. You know, yet, God is always willing to, to forgive and to give a new chance. The history of the church, whilst we've had some very, very good popes, sainted popes, heroes, in fact, the first 50 popes were all martyrs. You know, we entered a, a, a period where we are ashamed even to call them Christian. You know, they, they've been, popes have been an absolute disgrace. In modern times, we were spoiled, I believe, by the popes from... Pius the seventh, well, you know, Pius the sixth, Pius the seventh, where we had this long period of, of very good popes up to Pius the twelfth, and then from then, because Pius the twelfth himself was preparing for the consecration, John the twenty third came and said, read the secret and said, this is not a message for our time. Paul the sixth followed him, John Paul, 
you know, um, Benedict, Francis. So, yes, there is a problem. That's why we have to pray for our leaders. Um, you know, it was a high priest who handed Christ over. In fact, the, the high priest himself said, if this man carries on like this, the whole world will follow him. Isn't it better for one man to die than the nation perish? The high priest. And St. John comments, he said this, you know, um, he made this prophecy, you know, um, Yes, we, we do have a problem with, with our leaders um, because I, be, I, leave, I believe because they do not have their eyes set on heaven and fulfilling God's will. You know, I, it's, a, it's, it's a very valid and important question. Knowledge does give responsibility. Um, and th this is why, because I know what I do know, I cannot keep quiet about it. You know, the apostles themselves said that much. You know, we, we, we have to say what we have seen, what we have witnessed to. The responsibility I believe we have at this stage is to spread the message of Fatima, which is essentially one of prayer and sacrifice, particularly for our Holy Father, the Pope. We have to also instruct those around us, particularly our families. We have a responsibility to our children. Okay. We have to try to fulfill the requirements of Fatima, namely the daily rosary. We have to try to truly worship God at the Mass, not ourselves, but God. He has to be the focus. Everything should be about Him, because it is through the Mass that we receive the graces, and the same applies to the other sacraments. The Blessed Sacrament is central to it. From the very beginning, the, the angel when, directed the children to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Bringing, on the third, third visit, he brought them the Eucharist. Throughout the apparitions, there's reference to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Because it seems, it seems to me that the, 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 the sacrilege, the, the misuse of the Eucharist, the insults offered to Our Lady and the alienation of the papacy. These are the, th the three major areas of crisis. And so we need to repair, the, repair them or make up for them to the best of our ability. Devotion to Our Lady, I think, is, is, is central. That comes first because she will lead us to her son. So what what do you have to do? I think we have to we have to spread the message. We have to learn more and more about this. All of this, all the things I've said here, they're in books, yes, but you can also find them on the net, on the internet. If you Google Our Lady of Fatima and Esther, Our Lady of Fatima and Elijah, I'll speak about the connection between Our Lady, Our Lady of Fatima and Elijah as well. 
Uh, if you if you Google, in fact, uh, Fatima as a whole, the what has been done, you find all of this information there, and it it's the details. You find the references. You can follow those references as well. All I've given you is just an outline. So I'd say you also need to do that kind of research for yourself and see what you what you can do. We need we need to 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 literally form prayer circles, prayer rings, where where we are in contact with other people and to spread the message. There, there is an attack on the Catholic Church. And the attack is not external, it's internal. And who said that? John Paul II and Pope Benedict. John Paul II said, the year before he became Pope, 1977, he went to Brooklyn or Chicago, and he spoke at um, uh, a talk for the Polish people. And he said, we are entering the last stages of the great confrontation between the church and the anti-church, the Christ and the antichrist, the gospel and the anti-gospel. He said so himself. Pope Benedict, when he was asked why couldn't he do more, he said, my authority ends at that door. You know, so the, 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 the message has to be, put it this way, if, it, if the place is, if it's dark, you wouldn't know whether the room is tidy or not. You need light to see the condition of, of, the, of your house, of your room. It's the light that reveals it. This is what we're doing. We're throwing light on the crisis in the church. The church is in a state of crisis, and that was said both by Pope um, John XXIII, um, Pope John Paul, and um, Pope Benedict. In fact, if you'll just listen to the animators before Mass, welcome to our Eucharistic celebration. How many of them say welcome to the Mass, let alone welcome to the sacrifice of the Mass? Yet when you read, if you listen to Eucharistic prayers, it talks about the sacrifice all the time. And it goes even further. Um, the, when in the translation uh, of the, of the cons prayer of consecration, it said, for many, this is the chalice of my blood which shall be offered for you and for all, it used to say. In the original Latin, it was pro multis, for many. It has always been for many. The translators, the first set of translators, deliberately put for all. And in so doing, they brought a, a discordant note into the Mass because they have changed the words and therefore the meaning of what Christ said, which then brings us to the point, is it valid? Now, the consecration of the bread is certainly valid, but if you use the wrong words for the consecration of the chalice, then it may not be valid. Now, if it's not valid, it means that whilst you do receive Christ in the Eucharist, in the host, in the bread, 
there is no sacrifice because the sacrifice actually takes place with the consecration of the chalice. That's the point at which the sacrifice takes place. Now, it's very interesting. Um, I should have mentioned it in the talk. But um, Leo XIII, on the 13th of October, had this vision, 1884. The mass was changed in, 16, in, in, in 1969. We had the new mass. And then for the first time, the traditional mass was, was um, allowed under very, very strict conditions. And guess what the date was? 13th of October, 1984, exactly 100 years later. And the document was Quattro um, Adhong Anos, four years later. Yeah. Exactly 100 years later, that's when the traditional mass was once more permitted. And then after that, we had um, the Archbishop um, Fairview was forced out of the church. And um, well, we saw back on track now, this in regards to the Mass, because it's Pope Benedict in, in his um, Summum Pontificum said that the traditional Mass had never been forbidden, never been abolished, he said. Yet you got the impression it was. So these, these are lots of things, and I, um, I, I hope there's, that you're not more confused. To keep it very simple, Christ founded one church, the Catholic Church. He's promised to be with it to the end of time. He will not abandon his church. We can expect disasters in the church, and we can expect worse things to happen than are currently happening. And then we look at type and anti-type, and archetype. And the type is, if we go back to um, Christ in the upper room with his disciples, he's just celebrated Mass, he said, one of you will, be, one of you will betray me, he says, all of you will desert me, Peter says, no, even if all of these, I will not. He says, the cock will not crow until you have denied me three times. And so the Lord goes into the garden. He begins his passion. The soldiers come. He's arrested. The disciples run. He's taken to the court of Annas. And there he's slapped. And then he's thrown into this well, this pit. We went there. It's, it's a it's perhaps uh, what, ten, 10 feet, it's, it's a cistern, about circular, 10 feet, and water was kept in it, and he's trucked into this, in the mud. And I mean, going, first going there this year, it was last year, it, it sort of really brought back the passion, what it meant. He was there in the dark, alone, and the psalm, you know, I've, I've sunk into the, into the mire, I'm up to my neck, my enemies all around me and so on. 
And then he's taken out and he's dragged before Pilate. And then he's, all the time he's been beaten. Huh? And then he goes to Herod, he's insulted, he's taken back, he's scourged, his, his skin is hanging off his body, he's crowned with thorns, he's bloody, the flies are at him, he's carrying the cross, he goes to Calvary. That is the head of the church. Can the body be any different? No. If the body is suffering now, if it's being scourged, then we know that we are members. We are identified with Christ. This is happening to no other church. The scandals are inside, the scandals are outside. Yes, we are in the right place. It's not occasion to lament, but rather to rejoice. Because what happened to Christ, the head, is happening to his body, the church. Only one person believed when all of this was happening, only one person believed, his mother, our mother. And she stood, that's what St. John said, at the cross of Jesus stood his mother and the disciple whom he loved. We are the disciples whom he loves, so we have to stand close to Mary. She is our mother. If we move from her, there is no guarantee that we will stay on Calvary. So we are on Calvary. Yes, it's good news. And if these times are dreadful, and they are, then we are in the right place. We are with Mary on Calvary beneath the cross of her son. That's why I'm still a Catholic and still a priest, because I do believe that. Well, because there is a rebellion in the church. In canon law, it says every priest should know Latin and be able to celebrate this uh, liturgy in Latin. In every seminary, as far as I know, there is an obligation, it's there, to do it. But what happens, and it certainly happened with me, you're given one semester of Latin and that's it. I went out of my way. When everybody's having a siesta, I used to go to Latin classes. You have to make the effort. If you know, it's, not going to, it's not going to happen overnight. You have to make the effort to do it. But, but according to canon law, every priest should be able to, to, um, to offer the, sacra the, the sacraments in, in Latin. In fact, when Benedict wrote Summon Pontificum, some of the bishops attempted to say the priest couldn't do it because they didn't know Latin. And the Pope said, it is presumed that all priests know Latin and therefore they should not be given the test. If they want to celebrate the traditional Mass in Latin, then let them. That's, I mean, so there, there, there was a move to, to limit it, to stop it. And again, you ask the question, why? And if, if people want to mass in the vernacular, that's fine. But if others want it in Latin, why are we stopping them? We're not forcing it on anybody. Why stop them? Anyway, let's pray for open hearts, open minds, so that the Spirit may do His work. Let us ask 
for an increase in faith in these troubling times and a zealous spirit that we will make the effort to know our faith. As I said, next the next session I want to focus on the how the Fatima is reflected, how the Gospels are reflected in Fatima and show you how important the knowing the scriptures, knowing our faith and practicing it is. You know, it's, um, and later after that um, we'll, we'll talk about Our Lady, and, uh, Our Lady Fatima and Elijah, which is um, again another dimension to it. We can never exhaust the, the, the Word of God. We can end with uh, um, the memorare. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection implored thy help or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. Before you, before you I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but even thy mercy hear and answer us. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, Saint Joseph, our guardian angels, may the divine assistance remain always with us. So, so. So in session, Mary Immaculate, may Almighty God keep and bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us bless the Lord. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Thank you.